Talking Books with Susan Cahill. This is News Talk. product of leisure and if you've got an urgent problem on your hands you're not going to think uh, about anything else except solving that problem but but um, yeah what ultimately what if you look back over the history of philosophy it's what philosophers have said about music is has been a fundamental part of uh, their gift to um, the rest of humanity and it was um, Pythagoras who who first um, recognized that music is a kind of applied mathematics uh, and he thought expressed the real fundamental structure of the universe and that thought influenced the whole way in which ancient people thought about them, their duties, their relations to each other, their relations to the state and so on. So music, uh, um, understanding music for them was part of understanding the rest of the human condition. What is classical music and does it deserve its high status in contemporary society? Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, we're going to tackle those questions with English philosopher, writer and musician Roger Scruton, whose latest offering, Music as an Art, has just been published by Bloomsbury, where Roger writes, Classical music demands an extended act of attention. No detail can be easily anticipated or passed over, and there is no backing, that is to say no beat, to carry you through the difficult bits. Roger goes on to state, the absence of a tune does not mean the absence of a melody. So what is the purpose of music and why is it so important? Hello, my name is Roger Scruton. I'm um, a writer and philosopher. I have, at certain stages in my life, taught in universities. And um, most of my days I spend writing and, or listening to music or sometimes playing the piano. Music has been one of the most important things in my life. And actually, in recent times, I've written a lot about it. And I've tried to condense some of my thoughts into some of the chapters in the the book that I'm just bringing out. Really well done on the book, uh, Roger. I have to say it was an engrossing read. I am a music fan and love all types of music and you encompass so many different traditions within the book and it's very varied, it's very challenging and hugely stimulating. So uh, really well done on that. Well, thank I, you. I might throw you a big wide open question to kick things off and sure we can take it from there. Mm-hmm. What is the place of music in Western civilization? Like, how do you understand its place? How do you understand it all? Well, I think this is a really important question. Music has obviously been incredibly important in um, not only in our religion, but uh, in the Christian religion, but in all the ways in which people have celebrated their social membership over the uh, the centuries: in dancing, singing, uh, playing in little instrumental groups, the, the habit of accompanying meals and festivals, and and other th- other such occasions with music is ingrained in our, our civilization. Uh, and the interesting thing is that that, it, that music has developed 
historically in our civilization. It's not remained the same. It's constantly changing in response to new discoveries, new harmonies, new ways of, uh, of, of letting it all hang out and so on. Yes, yeah, so I, I think it is actually central to our civilization in a way in which it is not, for example, central to Islamic civilization. Music is there, of course, in Islam, but it is not the central thing, whereas it's arguable that it really has been absolutely central, at least since the Renaissance in, in, in uh, European civilization. So when does music become art? Uh, that's a really big question. Uh, <laughs> it, uh, when does anything become art? I think it becomes art when it ceases to be merely entertainment and becomes an object of study and and interest and fascination for its own sake. When you start, uh, as it were, listening in silence, that's one of the things that makes it into an art, and you start want to, wanting to know what it means and to find meaning in it and to put meaning into it. I think then it becomes an art in something like the way that painting does in those circumstances. Could it be argued, though, that there is good taste and bad taste to music? Well, for a lot of different people. And within that, that is how they see when music becomes art. Well, that's one way of putting it. Uh, um, somebody who doesn't see music as an art form is someone who wouldn't distinguish good taste from bad taste. You know, it's, uh, it's just something that happens. Some people enjoy it, I, uh, others don't. Um, but, of course... As soon as you think of something as art, the question of taste arises. And I think um, it, it, is a, it then becomes controversial. As soon as you start criticizing somebody else's taste, you're not just criticizing their choices. You're in some deep way criticizing them. And that is, has, produces a huge reaction. In your introductions, you argue classical music demands an extended act of attention. No detail can be easily anticipated or passed over, and there is no backing. That is to say, no beat to carry you through the difficult bits. Yeah. I'm just wondering, is it fair to just think that that is what classical music does and that we cannot say that possibly jazz does that, or very good folk music, or possibly jet metal? Well, of course there's... Um there's, there's good jazz and there's bad jazz, and, and likewise with folk music. Um, I think, however, jazz requires a different frame of mind from classical music on the whole. First of all, because it's an improvisation, uh, and you're, 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 you're appreciating not just the musical material, but the particular way a performer is, is developing it along his own uh, sort of pathway that he's chosen. Uh, and it's a different kind of experience and for that reason, you know, it has to be taken in relatively small doses, you know, before, unless it, if it's not to become monotonous. I mean, there are the great jazz musicians who are so astonishing in their, in their musical accomplishment that you would want them to go on forever. But after, actually, even them, after a while, you would think enough is enough. You have a very amusing passage at the beginning of the book where you're describing um, um, a lecture series you gave, I think it was in an American university, mm. on the philosophy of music. And um, I was quite surprised that a lot of these um, uh, students going into the class, they had no clue of classical music at all. No, this was a surprise to me as well. Uh, what was even more surprising that, that, that was that despite that, they saw music as a philosophical issue 
an area where there is something to understand and they hadn't understood it and they wanted to understand it, uh, even though all they knew were, might be the Guns and Roses and ACDC. And that was extraordinary to me. But it's interesting when you sit down with anyone and you discuss music, whatever the genre of music that they like, um, you realise that within music, music is asking us questions of ourselves and of the world. And it's creating that conversation. And by definition, there's a kind of a, a philosophical process running through it, isn't there? Yes, that that is what is extraordinary. Of course, one of the things that I discovered teaching this was that if you introduce students to music in that way, they move of their own accord towards classical music. They think, well, you know, if, if this is a kind of thought, uh, let's get the really good examples of it, uh, where the thought begins at the beginning and takes you on a proper journey, you know, so that there's something that you've discovered by the end. And that, that's something which I, 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 is a marvellous thing to see dawn in, in a young mind. I was very interested in your argument on how music calls us if in some way. You write somewhere that music is heard as addressed to us. We move with it, regard it as calling on our attention, making demands on us, responding to our response. I thought that was beautiful. Well, yes, thank you. I, I, I mean, that was one of my um, basic thoughts in this book is to point out that, that uh, music isn't just a sound that we hear or overhear not like a running brook which we might pass by and and think oh that's a nice tinkling sound or or indeed like the um muzak that you hear in a restaurant real music is addressed to you in the sense that it it uh, it asks you to to listen L- listen to what i have to say so to speak and uh, uh, nobody can uh, can um, actually be in a concert hall listening to a serious thing by serious piece by mozart or someone like that without recognising that there's a soul there and he, ha- he has to meet that soul in some way. How do you understand the relationship between music and time and how, you know, and the different kind of patternings within that? Like, what, what, what we, when I say music and time, what, what, what do you think of? Well, the, 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 that's a really difficult question. Nobody knows what time is. St. Augustine said, said uh, famously that, but when I ask myself what is time, I don't know what to say. Um, but when I don't ask myself, I know exactly what it is. Um, and I think that's a bit similar to music. We do have a sense that music moves in time and measures time uh, and, as it were, uses time as a substance from which it is constructed. But um, it uses it in a very different way from the way in which the rest of reality is situated in time. It makes time flexible or plastic, so to speak. You, you can, uh, it pulls time apart, it extends it and contracts it. Uh, and you feel that very strongly in the great 19th century symphonies where one and the same theme can be played twice as uh, slowly uh, or twice as fast. And in each case, you feel that the time dimension itself is being stretched or compressed. And, and that gives us a very strange sense that, that, that actually music is taking place in another kind of time. And another type of space, if you will. So really, when you think about it, it's playing tricks with us. Well, yes, um, but it's we who are playing those tricks, remember. We're playing the instruments. Um, but yes, it's something which is taking our, our attention in a new direction completely. 
and in much the way that uh, that um, poetry does and mathematics, you know, everything that that is really a serious exercise of the mind takes us to that extent outside ourselves. And I suppose that in in itself is a definition of art, is it? Well, it's one part of what art can do, yeah. yes. You bring up uh, the work of um, the cognitive scientist uh, Stephen Pinker and mm. he describes or considers music as to be evolutionary cheesecake. I'm just wondering, um, what do you make of that? Well, it's a, it's a nice uh, little idiom. I mean, what he means by that is that you know, just as cheesecake um, stimulates all kinds of uh, uh, very basic adaptations that, that were unneeded, um, for the species, well, for our genetic material to survive, but without being itself a, a natural object of of our um, appetite, so does music sort of play with with other things, other aspects of the of our m- mentality, which are adaptations useful in other circumstances, and it plays with them, gives us a little extra um, and unnecessary uh, uh, addition, so to speak. Um, but I don't think that is true. I mean, I think that that there are, um, you know, that that there are aspects of music which are absolutely fundamental to our nature as reproductive beings. That, for instance, the lullaby. I think the lullaby is a human universal, and it's it's a fundamental part, you know, of, of the bonding between mother and child, rocking quietly together. The sense of rhythm. The sense. Of the, of the gentle flow of uh, of the music around the child's ears, it's it's part of what attaches a child to its mother. And it's interesting whether you go to West Africa or you go to a country like Haiti, um, or you could be in Ghana. You um, hear women working, and they're while they're working, you hear women singing, or you can hear, you know, when you hear and watch women uh, sing to their children. It's a beautiful thing to watch, and um, yes. it happens all over the world. Yes. And the same with dancing. I mean, nowadays people don't don't dance very much, and that when they do, it's a complete chaos. But if you look back over previous societies and most most ordinary and primitive societies, dancing is a fundamental part of social bonding. Uh, you, people they dance when uh, to, to produce the rain. They dance at weddings. They dance to, uh, to prepare themselves for war, etc. You know, in every way, human beings have used the dance in order to to be together at the crucial times. But it's interesting, Roger, people are incredibly self-conscious when they're dancing, no matter what age they are, because it is so uh, revealing, isn't it? That's right. Well, I think they're self-conscious now, partly because we live in this sedentary culture and music comes to us through the iPhone, you know. Um, but I think it, 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 it hasn't been like that until recently. So, Roger, how well do you think the um, science community has understood the power and the beauty of music and what music can do? Well, I'm sceptical of, of the neuroscience of music. I don't think neuroscience has got very far with understanding what it is to hear something as music rather than just as a sequence of sounds. I think this is a very difficult question. What is the difference between a sequence of sounds uh, and a melody. I mean, a melody is a sequence of sounds, but but what is what is it that we're hearing when we're hearing the melody? I don't think any neuroscientist has got anywhere near 
answering that question. But the question you're asking there is obviously something that is, um, it's, it's by definition part of your uh, discipline as a philosopher. So yeah. how a philosopher will look at something will always be incredibly different to a neuroscientist. Clearly you're coming, want to come at the truth and clearly you want to discover and unpack and all the rest. But mm. the, the, the question surely will always be different. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, and philosophers are um, fairly mean-minded towards neuroscientists for that reason. They think, well, no, you, you, I'm not going to let you confiscate my question. And uh, uh, so we were always asking the question, you know, the question, what is it? Not what explains it, but what is it that needs to be explained? But still, we've got to ask those questions. And those were the questions that interest me in, in this book, of course. But does that not make the world such an interesting place that we all have whatever it is, whether we're looking at architecture, art, music, whatever it is, and um, we're all looking at it quite differently. We're all trying to reconcile and understand. But it's so interesting how we all look at it. Yes, of course. Um, There are, we we all look at things differently, but there are also universals. You know, there are things that we all share and uh, Understanding those can be even more difficult than understanding the things that distinguish us. Tell me, Roger, um, do you like animals, do you? I do. <laughs> you have horses, is it, or something like that, is it? Horses and dog and uh, yeah, a few things like that. Yes, you write, many animals have the capacity to hear music, but only humans, I suspect, hear music as music. Mm. Um, I'm not sure everyone would agree with you on that. Well, no, I, I know this is a controversial thing. Uh, um, what I would want to say is that, uh, going back to the question of what is the difference between hearing a sequence of sounds and hearing a melody, the hearing of a melody r- involves capacities, which I think we have, definitely, imaginative cap- capacities, capacities to link one thing with another, even though we don't have any particular belief that comes from that that there is capacities which sometimes called imagination. I think other animals don't have, or if they do, they only have it marginally. And although, of course, birds can make sounds which we hear as music, often very beautiful, um, there's no need for us to assume that they hear it as music, and indeed nothing, no evidence that we could conceive of that would prove that. But I'm being a bit sceptical in saying that. I realize that, and I wouldn't want to deny someone the illusion that his dog is a, uh, is a great appreciator of Beethoven. But when you say there, Roger, there's no need for us to assume. Mm. Um, why not assume? I know it's possibly yeah. uh, not the smartest thing in the world well, to do. No, you're but right. For, well, but, you know, well, when we hear the John Chorus, it's absolutely uh, um, inspiring, outstanding. Right. It's just so beautiful. Like last night, I came in from work and um, I was in my garden uh, pottering away and um, there was a new bird in my garden and the sound was just terrific Mm. and to think that that animal didn't have some imaginary capacity to me seems like crazy yes well uh all i would say is that of course when you say why not assume that they have the power um i would say yes let's do that if it makes us um appreciate nature more fully than we would otherwise i think that's a good thing but on the other hand it is a fundamental principle of scientific method that, uh, you know, Occam's razor, you should only assume the existence of those powers and potentials which are necessary to explain what you observe. And that means you've got to be a minimalist if you want to be scientific. But, um, 
you know, uh, of course the dawn chorus is a wonderful thing, and we all hear it musically, but it's nothing like what we hear in the first movement of Stravinsky's Rite of Spring, you know, where, where the thing really comes into a different dimension altogether. Roger, it's very interesting in your argument that uh, music helps us to imagine some kind of contact with the transcendental. Mm. And it got me thinking, that, you know, I appreciate lots of different types of music and I think there's a space for all types of music. Clearly some is better than others, but, you know, it's all personal. But I'm just wondering, do you think all music can do that? That can help us? Like, we could look at possibly poetry to the same, to the same extent or possibly uh, very fine theatre. But I'm just yeah. wondering... In terms of art, bringing us uh, to the into the transcendental. Well, it, it, uh, no. I mean, I think obviously it's at it's at the a certain kind of limit that it does this. But there are, I think, most people hearing plain song properly performed by by a proper choir um, do feel that this is a kind of dialogue with with the divine, and certainly Renaissance polyphony or something like. Bach's St. Matthew Passion. You can't possibly uh, listen to that with any attention without seeing that it's aimed towards something outside this world completely and uh, and making it present among us. And I think this is one of the reasons why music has been so important in our civilization, that our religious ceremonies have been built around it for this reason. But if we look at, you said, St. Matthew's Passion there, and you, there's some great um, religious music, some sublime choral music out there uh, and all the rest. But surely um, it reaches a point or touches us at a point so that all music can do that. Well, possibly, but um, I, I, would, I wouldn't say that, um, you know, that heavy metal does that. Um, it, you know, different, different kinds of music take you to the limits, that's true, but they don't necessarily step beyond those limits into the, the realm of the divine. I think that is something which only a certain kind of music can do. Do you think everyone has that, like, do you think all of us have that capacity with the right or appropriate music, as you would see it, to access that realm of the divine, as you call it? Well, um, it's certainly there in our nature. Yes, there's a longing for that, I mean, in all of us. But for some of us, of course, an unmusical person, music is not going to satisfy that longing, but something else might. And is that longing connected to belief, or how do you see it? Well, yes, it it is connected to the sense of our smallness in relation to the the universe, and the sense of the universe as something like a a gift, a a gift from a higher power, which, which, uh, and a blessing. You know, that's sentiment is something that we all have and we all long to to understand it and to hold it to us so to speak and what about for non-believers though well non-believers have a problem but it's one that you know um people believe in a different way there's no one faith that that uh, that music addresses Um, but if if someone has no no such uh you know immortal longings as shakespeare called them then it's so impossible for him to see any kind of art as really taking him out of his life, this life at all. Tell me, Roger, you're a fan of um, uh, German music, aren't you? 
And um, you have a very interesting take on Wagner and Nietzsche. You say Wagner was the most philosophical of musicians and Nietzsche the most musical of philosophers. So Mm. a philosophy of music ought to be implied somewhere in their conflict. I thought that was very interesting. Um, Can you talk me through that? Well, yes. I mean, uh, it was a most extraordinary conflict because, uh, you know, Nietzsche adored Wagner originally, but of course... Wagner's personality was not an easy one to form a friendship with, uh, and nor was in Nietzsche's. And of course, they inevitably fell out. Uh, and um, but but they fell out over the matter of music. Uh, you, you know, um, Nietzsche saw Wagner as as taking music uh, to a kind of excess uh, and detaching itself, uh, detaching it from reality and from the truly human. Uh, and producing something which was uh, inflated, bombastic, and uh, and fundamentally out of control. Um, whereas Wagner, in response, saw Nietzsche as a kind of negative presence in the culture, someone who was constantly trying to bring things down to his own size. And how do you assess both their contributions? I know that's a massive question, but clearly, um, uh, depending on your philosophical views and moral views, there's a place for Nietzsche within society. Um, But um, Wagner has been uh, so criticised by so many people from broad areas of life, whether people like his music or not, artists, artists responding to Wagner's music, and also in terms of culture and symbols and the kind of political overtones that that has. Well, of course. I mean, it's a very complicated question. My own view is that Wagner himself was innocent of most of the accusations made against him. He was he, he was guilty of anti-Semitism, as so many people in his time were. But it doesn't follow from that that he was guilty of the Nazis, because they came much later, and he would have been appalled by them. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, there was... There are aspects of Wagner which everybody has to take with a certain measure of of suspicion. I think the same of Nietzsche too. Uh, and um, but what what one shouldn't take with suspicion in in Wagner's case is the great works of art that he produced. Uh, those I think are not polluted by the weird obsessions of his writings and his uh, you know and, his, and the way in which he conducted his life. But you can't control what history is going to do to your art. And, um, you know, if you look back through history, how certain aspects of his music has been interpreted by political movements or whatever it is. You know, Wagner could never control that. And um, why should we be so, uh, why should we blame him? Well, no, I think we shouldn't. He didn't, it was, uh, absolutely. Uh, He he was motivated by the highest artistic intentions. But, uh, of course, precisely because he has such huge ambitions. He inevitably provoked a great deal of resentment and envy and all the usual stuff. So, um, and then, of course, we went through the horrible 20th century transformation of Germany, and he was the first person to be held to blame for it. But whether Wagner was operating on a higher level or not, um, Roger, you know, isn't it interesting if we just look at musical history and then see how certain composers were chosen because possibly, as you say, for their ambition or whatever it was, that how they were reimagined or reinterpreted for a certain movement. Like, it is interesting to see how that all transpires, isn't it? Oh, it is. Uh, You know, uh, uh, one wonders what Beethoven would think 
of the use of the choral movement from the Ninth Symphony as the European anthem, you know. Talking Books with Susan Cahill. This is News Talk. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, I'm talking with English philosopher, writer and musician Roger Scouten, whose new book, Music as an Art, has just been published by Bloomsbury, where Roger argues 
the Great Epoch in German philosophy coincided with the Great Epoch in German music. I asked Roger about German philosopher and writer Arthur Schopenhauer and his contribution to the philosophy of music. Well, Schopenhauer is a very great thinker, not um, in the mainstream of philosophy, really. He was very much himself. But one, one of his contributions is, of course, to have a real philosophy of music. He was the only uh, one of the great philosophers who took music uh, seriously as one of the fundamental issues that philosophy had to address. I mean, he saw music uh, as a presentation of the will, the will being the, the thing in itself behind the world of appearances, behind the world of representation. Uh, and he tried to explain the power of music in those terms, saying that actually music is a kind of metaphysics in itself. It's telling us what the real nature of the world is. And that was an extraordinary um, fertile suggestion and, of course, hugely influential on Wagner as, as, well, as well as everybody else. It's interesting, though, Roger, that, you know, when most people think of the world of philosophy and the types of questions philosophers have asked themselves through the centuries, you know, they're thinking about um, political economy. They're thinking of uh, questions in relation to human rights or, you know, I mean, lots of stuff Mm. like that. And they may not think that, you know, a response is the philosophy of music. So they say there are more direct needs of philosophers, you know. Like I would imagine, you know, Ireland's in the middle of a housing crisis at the moment and we've a a lot of uh, problems in relation to social poverty. And um, if we could, you know, try and get um, our government to sort out what we're doing wrong and maybe get five of the leading best philosophers in the room and figure it all out, (laughs) Mm. you know, um, they will be thinking on stuff like that and not necessarily music. But music can offer sustenance and all sorts of things to people, can't it? Of course, uh, I'm, I think it, it, it is the case that you know philosophy, on the whole, is a product of leisure. And if you've got an urgent problem on your hands, you're not going to think uh, about anything else except solving that problem. But but um, yeah, what ultimately, what if you look back over the history of philosophy, it's what philosophers have said about music is has been a fundamental part of uh, their gift to um, the rest of humanity. And it was um, Pythagoras who, who first um, recognized that music is a kind of applied mathematics uh, and he thought expressed the real fundamental structure of the universe. And that thought influenced the whole way in which ancient people thought about them, their duties, their relations to each other, their relations to the state and so on. So music, uh, um, understanding music for them was part of understanding the rest of the human condition. And what it is to be human and what it is to understand the world. Um, Tell me, um, Roger, you take a poke at um, um, uh, at film music in the book and you question, you pitch up a very interesting question on the status of film music. Um, I take it uh, you think it's a bit watered down, do you? Well, no, I, I have... I have a huge admiration from the, for those composers, you know, like like um, John Williams and and so on, who who can really mastered it, you know, because it's a it is a fantastic skill. Uh, but somehow one wants to say it's a skill, but not yet, uh, the, uh, you know, the 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 imaginative work of genius that that transcends mere skill and becomes a communication in its own right. But I don't want to say that really either. But one's always tempted to say that, which is one reason why 
you know, if you've written, if somebody had written a, a symphony and it was performed, say, in, uh, had, had a first performance at the proms, and the reviewer the next day said it was all film music, really, you would know that was a term of abuse, yeah. wouldn't you? You'd say, ah, oh, he's writing it down. Uh, uh, and why is that? You know, it's because we, we somehow feel that film music is music that isn't pure, it's being put to a use, and therefore perhaps being abused. But maybe our pal in question hasn't gone to enough foreign cinema. Let's say, for example, uh, Latin American cinema, um, Spanish movies or French movies. They have some terrific soundtracks. Yes. No, I, I'm not saying that this isn't tr- that, that, that this is the sole truth about film music. Uh, and of course, there were the, the extraordinary, extraordinary um, examples in our own tradition, the uh, music for the Hitchcock films and so on. Um, I guess I better say that I have a, a sort of open mind about it, but I understand what people mean when they say that film music is not yet in itself music as an art. It's music as a craft. But maybe they see it as an add-on. Yeah. And maybe if they were to go into a cinema and they we stripped out the music, then they would realise that it has huge value and huge import. Yes. It, well, it can have lots of values. It can also be... Um, compensating for a dramatic weakness in the film, you know. Um, especially now you have a new kind of film music, which is computer-generated, uh, uh, largely four in a bar, rep- rep- repetitive uh, uh, string music um, on three or four chords, uh, thumbing away in the background. You get it in the, the Churchill film that we've all just been seeing. Um, it's a super movie, I really enjoyed it. It was a great. Oh yeah, no, it's terrific. Yeah, it's movie, terrific. But, but, yeah, it, yeah. but if you'd taken that music away, a lot of the weaknesses in the dialogue would have been a, more apparent than they are. You know, yeah. a great set um, can compensate to a degree for um, a fairly pedestrian performance. Yes, all that. You know, uh, but the you know that that's right. But all, the cinema is a huge synthetic achievement. You know, got so many things brought together, and um, the music's only one part of it. But I presume, though, Roger, when you're relaxing on the couch and um, after a heavy day's thinking and all the rest, that um, you enjoy a good love song. Yes, of course. I, 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 um, I guess I'm fairly severe in my taste, but I, I can, I, I, I do enjoy, I enjoy the fact that people enjoy things, yeah. and so even when I'm not enjoying it, I can think my way into the state of mind of somebody who is, and think, well, oh, that's great. That's something that brings genuine, innocent pleasure to someone. And have you done much singing? I did when I was a boy, but I never got over the breaking of my voice. Oh. Yeah, I I was never able to sing in tune afterwards. It's really annoying. I hadn't heard much about the Future Symphony Institute Mm. and and their work. Um, Can you tell me about them? Because they seem like they're doing great stuff. Oh, yes. This is a a friend of mine who's, who's, who's principal trumpet of the... Baltimore Symphony Orchestra, who um, has been concerned, along with lots of his colleagues, of course, about the decline in audiences in the concert hall and the need to maintain those audiences and to make the symphony orchestra communicate more widely with the surrounding public and bring them back into the concert hall and become more of an active participant in the culture. I think this is a very important thing. Uh, otherwise, we'll we'll lose that great tradition of the of the concert hall. So he just put together 
this institute and, and you know invites us to write articles and we have meetings and so on and i think uh, and the idea is ultimately to persuade people that they've got to build symphony halls properly and not make them into alienating structures they've got to also make sure the symphony orchestra sees itself as part of a community and not not just something in a in a glass bottle on the on the outskirts but what about uh, ticketing and prices? And I'm sure you could argue the same about whether you go to Taylor Swift or whoever, you mm. know, the price, the exorbitant price of ticketing. But, you know, when you go to some of the um, uh, beautiful cities of Europe, whether it's um, Paris or Milan or even London, and you go um, outside of beautiful church music, some of the ticket pricings can be um unbelievably expensive. Oh, well, yeah, well, of course. And, you know, so by definition, you're not going to get young people or you're not creating a, you're not broadening it out. It is for the select uh, middle classes. This is what people say, and it probably is true, but uh, I, as a teenager, and and also a boy from the lower classes, was able to get into concerts in London on the strength of my pocket money. Uh, and we need to re- somehow get back to that situation. But it's interesting whether you look at government policy or the arts and support. Do you know what I mean? What what we're willing to, you know, wh- 